Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell, and I am indeed glad you're with me. And we've got, I think you're going to be glad too when you hear what we've got for you today. I've got James Thorne. This is a guy who came with us in May and told us specifically, look for a big time rally in stocks. Why? Because too many people had turned negative in the professional side of things. It'd be interesting to see what he thinks is going to happen now in the next several months, but I'll give you a hint. He thinks there's much more to come. I'm also going to talk to Pactra Sarizna. Now, this is big picture trading. He's going to talk about a specific strategy, specific, easy for me to say, specific strategy for being able to acquire a stock you like, but maybe at a 15 to 20% discount. We'll talk more about that, as I say. Ozzy Jerk's going to talk about great news if you're listening from Alberta and your real estate market, and it's coming courtesy of BC and Ontario. Oh, plus there's just so much more because I've got Victor with you. I'm going to talk with Mike Levy about just the big question you should be asking now about your investments, and I'd really encourage you to listen on. Plus, of course, I've got a shocking stat. I've got a goofy award, and we've got a quote of the week. But first, you know, earlier this week, I posted a brief comment regarding what I call the nonstop talk about whether the increase in interest rates is going to produce a slowing of the economy, you know, the so-called soft landing, or much more severe downturn, the hard landing. Well, you know what? My point is that the debate completely ignores that for 25% of Canadians plus, and it's a growing number, it's already a hard landing. And you know what? As I say, a big chunk of people right behind them. According to numerous polls, we've got millions of Canadians who are already being forced to cut back on basics like food. I mean, forget about discretionary spending. They don't have the money. and They're not going to restaurants or taking vacations. Ignoring the vulnerable, though, is typical. And it's characteristic. I say the chief characteristic of a new elitism that doesn't even acknowledge they exist. Look, I got to say, I'm never sure how many people actually care about lower income people. Certainly our politicians pay lip service when it suits their political agenda, but at the same time, the poor are quickly forgotten when it doesn't. Maybe climate change provides the most vivid example. Come on, it was downright embarrassing at COP26 just last November when the private jets and the luxury hotels and the fancy dinners featuring the elites of the uh, political or the business and NGO world pushing an agenda that would sentence the developing world to poverty. And in the case of hundreds of millions, a subsistence level of life, sentenced to never-ending, you know, poverty. They're never going to get the same standard of living of those of us in the West. You know, it's funny, at the end of that, the elites were surprised when India's Prime Minister Modi did a diplomatic equivalent of screw you and refused to sign on to that agenda. It didn't seem to bother the Western elites at all, though. So they went ahead with a Glasgow statement that says the West is not going to finance any fossil fuel-related energy projects in Africa. And in case you haven't noticed, energy consumption and our standard of living are directly correlated. If you don't know that, well, try cutting energy out of your life and see how that impacts your standard of living. Here's a little factoid. Two out of every three people in Africa, and they're estimating something like 620 million plus, they don't have any access to electricity. Incredibly, our elites are refusing to help finance any fossil fuel project in Africa. While at the same time, come on, the EU and the US are actually increasing coal consumption and production. I'm having a difficult time imagining being more out of touch. Well, maybe it's President Biden saying the remedy for high gas prices for people to buy an electric car, you know, they average what, 55,000 to 60,000 a year. 
My point is that they're not callous people, but they are oblivious to the poor. They simply don't exist. And that makes for a very dangerous dynamic socially. The no fossil fuel climate policy always guaranteed higher prices, as well as uh, fertilizer costs going up, diesel prices going up, which pushes food costs going up, which obviously the poor can least afford. You know, at a time of global food shortages, we still have the Canadian and Dutch governments talking about following the lead of Sri Lanka, demanding a reduction in fertilizer use and decrease in livestock. It certainly pushed the prices up. Wait till you hear this week's shocking stat. But in the battle between politicians, their climate agendas, and the poor, the poor are getting crushed and the elites don't even consider them. But here's the point. You know what? I bet they are now in emerging markets like Argentina, where the minister of the economy was nearly lynched last Saturday, Sri Lanka, where the homes of 38 politicians were burned to the ground before the president fled the country, Ecuador, where mobs literally hunted politicians. Yeah, I bet they're noticing now. The huge number of serious protests around the world, including the truckers' protests in Canada, farmers in the Netherlands, Poland, Germany, Italy. Politicians regularly ignore the impact of policy on the working class and low-income people. Uh, Come on, Linda Gates made that perfectly clear last December in an interview with the New York Times. She was talking about the impact of government lockdowns and restrictions. She stated in quotes, what did surprise us is we hadn't really thought through the economic impact, end of quote. Well, I bet, because whether we're talking COVID or climate and those policies and the impact financially, these elites aren't touched by it. Not the elites at the World Economic Forum or climate conferences. And as we're seeing in dozens of countries, the fallout is serious social unrest. And it's not over. You know, that old left-right paradigm's obsolete. The self-described progressive left, who used to claim to be uh, champions of the poor and blue-collar workers, are now focused on social justice you know, especially climate change. The establishment, which includes the mainstream media, can't seem to fathom why some people are upset. One way to put it is, it's those untouched by the financial fallout of government policy versus those that are. And with the long-term food and energy crisis, I mean, it's not going anywhere. With government refusing to acknowledge policy mistakes that produced inflation and produced that food and energy crisis, and now their war on fertilizer and farming. Well, my bet is that the rest, uh, the unrest is just starting. I mean, the revolution has started in emerging markets already. It requires a heaping helping of wishful thinking, though, to imagine it can't happen here, as the number of people who see their standard of living threatened moves up the income ladder. Hey, as I said, great show planned for you. Stay tuned. Jim Thorne, don't want to miss it. Really interesting thoughts on where the market goes from here. Michael Levy talking about the single question you want to be asking right now about your finances. And as I say, I love the shocking stat. I love the quote of the week. And I love what we're doing on the Goofy Award. Looking forward to this. James Thorne is the chief market strategist, Wellington Aldous Private Wealth. Jim, first of all, appreciate you finding time for us. And uh, and let me just share a story about why I thought I got to get Jim back on. Because you were with us in May. And you said to us, hey, look, this is what's going to happen. We're going to have all the professionals not in the market because we were in that midst of that decline. And you said, wait till they recognize, oh, we're on the way up. 
And the way you put it was, they'll do a dash for trash. I mean, they're going to have to pile in and get just about anything. And isn't that pretty much what we've seen? It's just starting, Michael. Um, there's this, I was saying the other day that I, I tend to do more on my psychology than, than you know financial models right now. And there's this model called the, the Keebler-Ross model that is about the five stages of grief, right? And the first two stages is denial and anger, right? These major global money-centered banks and finan- international financial institutions got the inflation call wrong, right? And got the interest rate call wrong, and they're all offside, right? So, so this is no different than 2009 and 2003. And, you know, it, there's max short in the market, right? Uh, nobody's positioned. So we would expect to see the money, all the, the cool kids, I call them, say this isn't going to happen, right? And, you know, what happens in the fall when the evidence becomes conclusive that we're in a deflationary area or, or disinflation and growth is slowing and the Fed's not going to raise rates as much as everybody expects. Massive short covering rally. You buy tech and and the market goes substantially higher. And, you know, that's the playbook. And. You know, so what we try to do is, you know, we try to tell people, we talk to our teams at Wellington Altus, we talk to our clients and 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 try to position for it, right? So think about this, right? Um, prices are going to come down again. What are they going to do in September when CPI prints a negative number? When PPI prints a negative number? Now we got two months, Right. And so what we suggest is just follow the traditional playbook, right? Well, let's talk about that. Just elaborate for people what the traditional playbook looks like, because, of course, it incorporates bonds and it incorporates stocks. Uh, you know, so let me just get you to elaborate on both of those. So we could be in the peak. The, uh, when we were talking uh, late spring, early summer, we said that the peak in interest rates are in. They can't. Let's go back to when we first met. Look at. Let's go back to the original. Well, what is what is the root cause of this? Right. The global economy has too much debt. Right. And we've known this forever. And so, how do you get out of it? You can either have a debt jubilee that they talk about in the Bible, right? Or you can you can try to grow your way out of it, right? And we have always felt that this looks like 1945 where you have too much debt coming out of society. You have a new demographic, the baby boomers coming along. You have three, you had three years of interest of, of, of inflation over 10%. The Fed couldn't raise rates because of uh, they they were afraid uh, of, 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 of crash and everything. So they contracted the balance sheet in 1949, got it down, and then it was a massive bore by, by between between the end of the 40s and the middle of 1965, the market went up a, a factor of seven, seven times. So that's when I first met you. So 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 what happens now? We've got more debt. Right. So people are thinking that we can raise rates. Look at the amount of debt Canada has put on given the covid crisis. Look at the amount of debt the United States has put on. They can't raise rates. They can't. And what's interesting about all of this, Michael, is when you read the speeches from the from a decade ago from Bernanke and all these guys, they always focus on the 1940s, but no one talks about it. So, so, so for for from my from my perspective is, look, they want to get to neutral. We're there. 
Um, they pivoted already. Okay. And pivot, if you look at the Merriam dictionary is change of strategy. So they're going to go data dependent. What's going to happen when the economy slows and we get month over month and it's month over month, not year over year, right? First off, you get negative numbers. The other thing I would say to you is what's really interesting is the legislative target for the Federal Reserve is core PCE, which has been declining since February. So, but they pivoted and they focus on headline CPI. And so you really got to ask yourself the question why that is. I don't know what it, what, I don't have an answer for you. So, so my argument, listening to Jim Bullard, who's the president of the St. Louis Fed, is this is exactly like 1994 and 1995. And after a period of time, and to go back, it was the Republicans, it was a midterm election. Republicans were coming after uh, President Clinton. Newt Gingrich was doing the contract with America. We had a, a, a tough little early part of the year in, in 94. The Fed raised rates about 3%. And once the market got a whiff that they were going to start downshifting the Fed rate hikes. Market went up and it went up to the end of the decade. I think that's where uh, we're in a secular bull market and, and there's going to be bumps along the way. But what we've been suggesting to our clients at Wellington is to add risk throughout the summer. But interest rates, so let's use technicians, right? The 10-year the U.S. had a head and shoulders top and broke the neckline which basically targets 2% on the 10-year. If they tighten too much, because we've still got the debt deflation environment that we've always had, if they screw this up, interest rates are going to zero. That's not our call. But the danger is they tighten too much. So we suggest peaking rates are in, buy government bonds, slowly add risk. If you want to buy some high-quality high corporate bonds, go ahead. But start adding to risk in your equity portfolio. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, it still comes back and pivots on the. Uh, I, I find it fascinating the debate about the Federal Reserve. You know, it's absolutely fascinating. You get some people saying the, the legacy um, that Jerome Powell wants isn't to have an inflationary environment. You know, so that relates to rates. I mean, there's so much going on within that debate. But uh, for individual investors, I, I think I want to make sure I highlight what you've just said in one way is you're not going all or none on at any one moment. I mean, you're, you're as you say, you're stepping in. Uh, and adding some risk uh, in this portfolio. It's not a straight line. There will be bumps. People should expect it. But overall, uh, as you say, the government really can't afford any sort of significant rise in interest rates given their own debt situation in the state's entitlement, debt, uh, interest, and defense spending. My gosh, you know, it's, uh, it's just way over what the receipts they're getting. You've nailed it. So, Given your given given your what your risk tolerance is, given what your goals are, given what your age is, the time to get defensive was the beginning of this year. The time to get defensive was November and December when we were talking and saying, "Look, the first six months of a midterm election cycle, going back to 1918, you typically have a 20 percent correction. Get into cash. Well, you're there. So now we bottomed. Now we typically go up and we rally hard. But that doesn't mean. And your point is so profound, though, Michael, because even though you look at what happened in the 90s, if we're going to use that as our roadmap, what was interesting is in the middle of the nine between 95 and 2000, there was the, uh, the, the long-term capital crisis. There was a severe financial crisis that was started by, um, you know, you know, George Soros attacking the peg of the Hong Kong dollar. 
and that manifested into uh, the currency crisis in the Asian Tigers, and then basically ended off with Russia defaulting on debt and almost taking down the largest hedge fund in the world that was levered, I don't know how many to one, and almost took out five of the top prime brokers in the world, in Wall Street, in the middle of a bull market. So to your point, right? Yes, the, the long-term trend is going to go up. Are there going to be bumps along the way? Absolutely. Do I know what they are? I have no clue. <laughs> but, but I know they're going to be there. Well, let me come also to uh, when you're on with us and at the World Outlook Conference, but in May, I just re- reemphasize, you said in May, okay, we're now getting to the time where you're going to buy some what you called long duration equity, quality companies and stock picking would be important within that parameter. Are there areas that uh, you're sort of focusing on in that direction or in that bent? Right. So the playbook, and it's funny because we always talk about this thing. I don't know if you're, your listeners, there's this thing called the yield curve, where if the two-year, if the interest rates on the two-year yield curve are higher than the interest rates on the 10-year bond, sorry, the ten, two-year bond has a higher interest rate than the 10-year bond, it inverts. And that typically is a signal. And then what happens is the Fed is trying to slow the economy down. And it's what's really interesting is a Canadian out of Toronto, Campbell Harvey, good Toronto boy, went to St. George's, then to U of T, then to York, and then he went to the University of Chicago. That was his PhD thesis. I think he's at Duke right now, right? And he did the thesis on it. He did the paper. And you do a lot of work around that. He did it, I think that was 1986, Michael, that was the paper. But you do a lot of work, and it basically is this. Yield curve inverts. Market goes up for 16 to 18 months. Buy tech. Buy those companies that their future is not dependent on acceleration of GDP, right? Because the Fed's trying to slow the economy down because of inflation, right? So that is a, I say tech, but let's be, let's be honest here. Going back to one of the, I, I, you know, I've been in this game so long. I ripped people off so often it's not funny. And what I got from you is every company is a technology company, right? So what company out there is embracing digitization and in, in evolving their business model so that they can grow in this new digital world and not have to de- depend on the acceleration of gross domestic product? And it depends on, doesn't matter what sector, it's what company, what management team, so on and so forth. And and so that's one. And, and then the other thing I would say to you, and we and I'm just gonna let's just let let's let the cat among the head house is look, Ethereum in crypto, Ethereum is up almost 90% since we've talked, and nobody, nobody's talking about him. And what's interesting, Michael, is all of the money centered banks are getting into the space. And if this plays out like the 90s. Then we get this next phase of the internet where the establishment, you know, I like, I think there's going to be a couple of banks in Canada that I I know there's a couple of banks in Canada that are really smart, have been working on this for a long time. And we're going to wake up one morning and say, and and think about it. And I don't know who they are, but I'm just going to say, you're going to wake up. It's going to be RBC digital and you're going to be able to buy Ethereum on the TSX and you're going to be able to buy NFTs on the TSX. And they're all going to be SEC or OSC approved. And we're going to have this new phase of where all the assets in the world are going to become digitized and tradable. And that's going to be a massive thing. And so 
So that's what I would be looking at. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting, and I'll, I'll put this to you, is going back to 1200, when you look at inflation spikes, or going back, typically what happens when we have a spike like this, it's twin peaked, right? So you have a spike, and then you come down, and then you have a spike. Here's where it gets fun, Mike. The year in between, deflation. Think about that. So we're going to go, if it follows the, from 1200, we're going to go from spike to deflation to spike. So what I would say to your listeners, and you've been talking about this, don't, do not lose hope on the commodity trade. Okay. But understand that in a period of time where deflation and, and inflation is coming down and the economy is slowing, you may not want to have as much exposure as you would say this time next year. When the consensus and the mainstream media is talking about deflation and we'll be, I'll be saying, Michael, now's the time, man. Now's the time. And, and just like you were before, remember you, you were talking about commodities and everybody, what is he talking about? Right. It's going to happen again. That's what the data says. That's what the history says. Yeah. It's, uh, first of all, there's so much there. I was just thinking to myself, that's why a podcast is great, because they can go back and listen to what you've just said. I, and I love that point. And I, I, forgive me, I just want to emphasize it, though. You're looking at some quality companies. It doesn't really matter how the economy is doing. The nature of their business is growth because they've leveraged technology or whatever. But I think that is a key point I'm not hearing. You know, I'm not hearing elsewhere. I'm sorry. I'm not hearing elsewhere. And I think that is a, a point to be emphasized, as well as what you've just said about the Twin Peaks. You know, I, I should write a paper called the Twin Peaks. But anyways, somebody did a television show, I think, that, <laughs> called Twin Peaks. But no, I think those are just terrific points. And uh, so here's my trick question is, uh, when that starts happening, believe me, I'll be phoning you to come on again. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Jim, thanks so much for finding time. This is just great stuff. I love big time food for thought. Be safe, everybody. And thanks for having me on. James Thorne, Chief Market Strategist, Wellington Altus Private Wealth. Time now for the quote of the week. But first, I better give you a little context regarding how much money's been sent or pledged to Ukraine. This week, the Biden administration announced an additional $1 billion in military aid, plus another $4.5 billion in non-military aid. I mean, the military aid is the 18th in the last 12 months, 18th package in the last 12 months. It totals something around $9.8 billion since the invasion. Overall, though, the U.S. aid now tops $5.4 billion. Canada's pledged a loan is up to $1 billion for the International Monetary Fund's administered account for Ukraine in the budget 2022. With Ukraine this week asking, though, the IMF, they want additional money, by the way. And that's in addition for Canada giving $620 million in bilateral loans, which we committed earlier this year. Since February this year, Canada's committed more than $620 million additional dollars in military aid for Ukraine. That's a kind of a big package there. And there's more money from Europe, of course. But no one talks about the fact that no one knows specifically where the billions in military and non-military aid have gone. I mean, concerns have been expressed from the beginning that weapons would end up on the black market. And we should worry. Think about this. Transparency International ranks Ukraine 122nd out of 180 on their Global Corruption Perception Index. The Global Corruption Index, which is different, ranks Ukraine 123rd out of 196 countries for corruption. 
And does anyone really think the war changed all that? And that brings me to my quote of the week. And it's a brief one, but a telling quote by the New York Times respected columnist, Pulitzer Prize winning author, Thomas Friedland. And he's talking about the amount of money that's been sent to Ukraine in quotes. It's as if we don't want to look too closely under the hood in Kiev for fear of what corruption or antics we might see when we've invested so much there. End of quote. Well, I bet we don't, and we certainly don't have any questions asked in that direction. I want to bring Mike Levy in here. Mike, I mean, the action in the markets has been to the extreme at times. I mean, rightly so. I mean, you look at what the Federal Reserve is going to do. People are on edge waiting for that. Obviously, very positive response this week. But you've been mentioning this for the last few weeks, just saying, man, is it ever a puzzling environment? Because one minute you can say, look at all the job losses in techs. And by the way, you were right on that. They continued this past week, big time. That has a lot of analysts now questioning those job numbers we got a full week ago. So, I mean, that's the environment we're investing in. Well, just before I get started, Mike, I just want to say I've got a bit of a chest cold. So I apologize to our listeners if I'm coming across exactly the way I sound to me, which isn't very good, but uh, yeah. Well, I'm impressed you. that you have a chest. Let's, let's just start. Let's go on the positive <laughs> side. Congratulations. You've got a chest, but yes, you have a cold. You still sound just fine to me. Oh, good. Mike, U.S. inflation, 8.5% in July, or in July, 9.1% in June. And wow, it's down six tenths of 1%. And the markets take off the day that they announced it. The Dow was up 550 points. Next morning, up again. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here. And, and then the, the talk out there, Fed's only going to raise 50 basis points, not 75. Well, Mike, this is a pretty, it has been a pretty, pretty good rally. And, you know, I start to wonder about portfolios at this time. Do we climb on board or do we say, I've been waiting for this. Maybe I want to lighten up a little bit. Well, first, let me pat Victor on the, on the back. We'll talk to him later in the show, of course. But he said last week, you know, markets that refuse to go down on bad news want to go up. And that's what I think we're experiencing here. But I think the message I want to give to people in the investment markets is, you remember going back, obviously, in June, Mike, and May, and we got all that weakness in the market. We had people, you know, at various levels, though, of being very distressed, some extremely distressed. So I say, hey, you've got a rally. It's given you a break. It's recovered some of those declines. I mean, I've got to feel people, if you felt that way when it was going down, I think you absolutely must go back into your portfolio and assess the risk you're taking. You're missing this opportunity. The market has given you a reprieve. If you thought maybe you had been too aggressive going into the decline, well, it's given you a reprieve. So bang, have a look at your portfolio and, and decide, am I taking too much risk? And I notice you're saying this and I feel exactly the same way. You're not saying go into your portfolio and lighten up. You're saying, take a look at your portfolio and don't take a look with stars in your eyes because the markets have gone shooting right up. And they Mike, NASDAQ is back into bull market territory. I mean, that if you'd have talked about that, we did two months ago, two and a half months ago, we wouldn't be anywhere near talking like this. People would have us put a, locked up and put away. But I agree with you is I think it's time to take a look. There's always FOMO, fear of missing out. But if you were thinking that you would have liked to have lightened up, I just say exactly what you're saying. You've got to take a second look. And the other thing I wanted to bring to mind is coming back to inflation. 
there's an argument of whether the Fed is going to bring it down to 2 to 3% or be happy with 5% inflation. Well, if you're on that camp, I don't think that you want to do anything but lighten up because 5% inflation, I'm talking now, is not in the long run going to be good for markets. And obviously attractive on the bond side. You know, all of a sudden, you know, we haven't had any competition from the bond market for a you know, number of years. I mean, who the heck wanted 0%, a half percent, 1%? You know, the stocks made you know, the obvious choice there. You get back up to 5% and people started going, you know what? I can get 5% feeling like I don't have any risk. But I'll come back to this. I think the central question is this. People have to ask themselves. I don't have the answer for anyone else other than myself. But which would have a bigger impact on your personal finances? That you lightened up your exposure to the market and then it continued higher. Or you decided to stand pat and there was a significant market decline. Whichever one of those upsets you the most kind of gives you a direction much where you might go from here. But I guess I'm saying the bottom line is don't be complacent is my big message here. You know, because as you know, Mike, I mean, gosh, there's still a ton of analysts out here who think it doesn't matter what they label what's going on with NASDAQ, for example, who think, hey, there's another big shoot of a drop. They think that the market that is sort of optimistic that the Fed won't crush the economy is wrong or that the Fed will not continue rates into sort of a, a four to five percent so-called neutral rate into five percent. They think they're wrong. And I'm just trying to acknowledge that, that this is not a riskless environment. And Sorry, Mike, I'm going on and on, but look around how much risk there's been in different categories over the last several years. Some money's been made, but some money's been lost. So again, I'm just worried about complacency. And I'm going to add something. You're talking complacency. I'm going to put another warning sign out there. The producer price index, that's the index of wholesale prices in the United States, came out Thursday, and it generally reflects the supply conditions in the economy increased by 9.8% annually in July. That's the smallest annual rise since October of 2021's 8.9% increase. Okay, since October. But the fact is, wholesale prices are up almost 10%. That has to reflect when it gets into retail and into the everyday inflation question. So I think that's another important place to look and to consider. Well, obviously on Money Talks, we're going to be chronicling all this. We have sovereign debt problems. We have especially the emerging markets are going right according to our schedule, which look out because that's going to spread further. You know, you've got the farmers protests. I mean, how can, I mean, well, whether Europe will be in a recession or not, I mean, I think that's a laughable question. Europe's in real trouble. You mentioned food prices. Germany's food prices are basically up 15% year to year right now. You know, they obviously have the energy, the dramatic energy problems over the next year. I mean, all of this is the sort of the uh, mix of which we're asked to invest in the context. And of course, we talk about it weekly on Money Talks. But yeah, I'll finish with that sort of big warning. You know, as you know, and Victor's going to be smiling hearing this because as a professional trader, he gets, you know, he talks about this all the time. Manage your risk. That does not entail falling asleep just because we've had a rally. Got it. And I couldn't agree with you more. You've got to be proactive. You don't have to trade, but you have to be proactive and looking at your portfolio and say, you know, eight months ago, nine months ago, I wanted to take something off the table. Do you still feel the same way? And in the meantime, you go take care of your voice, but I hope you feel better soon. Thanks, Mike. This is my broadcast voice from the 80s, so uh, I'm being reincarnated. Have yeah. a good weekend, Mike.
You know, in this environment, I want to make sure you've got all the tools that are available to you really to deal with risk. Obviously, we like reward, but it's also, you know, it's a risky environment. There's tons of manipulation going on by central banks, obviously, and there's other factors involved, geopolitical. Again, it's an uncertain environment. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to check in with Patrick Sarizna of Big Picture Trading. Now, you might note him from the market huddle also or, or macro trends, but right now, macro voices rather. Right now, though, he's joining us and he's doing it a favor for us. He's joining us from Europe. He's on the go there. Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Mike, for having me back on the show. Looking forward to a good chat. Well, and you know, at, you know, at Big Picture Trading, one of the, you're specializing in using uh, many strategies, but options primarily that, that every, you know, I, I hate this expression, you know, average people, everyday people, but, you know, investors that are not necessarily in the professional aspect of the, of the business can use and it helps enhance their, uh, you know, their yield sometimes. Uh, it, it, but in this case, I want to talk more specifically about, here's a question. I kind of like, for example, the commodity stocks, but I'm not sure about the environment we're in right now. Maybe there's going to have another leg down. Well, I thought, let's ask Patrick about what we call selling puts. Right. Well, thank, thanks, Michael. Uh, in fact, uh, selling puts is uh, one of my favorite ways to actually generate income. Now, uh, many of your listeners, the moment uh, we said the word selling puts, the hair on the back of their neck is standing up and they're, uh, they're like, oh, that's, uh, that's risky stuff. Uh, and, and if you heard that uh, before, well, that's because there's a very clear stereotype to selling puts, uh, which is, is that you hear a lot, some people getting hurt in doing it and that they're risky and that they take all these different complicated ways to get approved for doing them. But uh, I want to emphasize one very important point. There is absolutely nothing risky about selling a put. What is risky is leverage. And what almost always happens uh, when people get cocky with put selling is they go and they oversell the amount of puts they have, exposing themselves to very large sums of leverage. And then when inevitable drawdown sequence occurs, it causes all sorts of margin issues and other things that gets them into trouble. And then they say, oh, see, I told you puts were risky. But it wasn't the put that was risky. It was you that was risky. It was the fact that you leveraged to that degree. So let's, let's just take a moment and just talk about what a put is. The put, when you are the seller, you've undertaken an obligation to buy a stock uh, from someone at a specific price over a specific period of time. And when you have undertaken that obligation, you were paid for that obligation. Someone paid you money for taking the downside risk of the, uh, of the security. Uh, this can often be incredibly lucrative, particularly for those people that are actually willing to own the stock that they sell the put on. And that's exactly where you are going to go with this conversation, because a lot of people that are levered up and doing all these complex strategies, you know, once they start losing on an option, they'll immediately close it at a loss and they'll, they'll trade, they'll be active. But in the purest form, there is, uh, there is an opportunity to make great returns uh, on this. And we can give some great examples. That's a, a very good explanation, by the way. And and for those sort of, in quotes, fancy or more complex strategies, they can just simply go to big picture trading. 
You know, I mean, you deal with all of that. We're not talking with that your full universe today, for sure. You're, we're talking fundamentals. But I just want to remind people that, hey, it's not that you guys don't do that and you can't do a ver huge variety of that. We're talking about one simple aspect, and I love the distinction you've made. We're not talking about big-time leverage here or anything like that. I'm saying, for example, let's, and this is, please, everyone listening, I'm not recommending. I'm just giving you an example. Gee, I really like uh, copper, so I like Freeport McMoran you know, as, an, as a copper producer. So we're talking about, I picked a stock, I do want to own it, and now I'm going to sell a put. And the reward could be, I could get a, like a 15% discount on my buying price. Well, you could look at it from a 15% a discount on your buying price, but you could look, I, I like to look at it as a, a proposition, which is, uh, okay, so let's say right now, Freeport McMoran is uh, trading at $31.5 US. Right. And uh, you could turn around right now and uh, sell a put option at the $30 strike. So it's a $31.50 and we're selling a $30 strike, which is basically saying to the counterparty, to the buyer of that, call, uh, that put option, that at any point from today till January, let's say, of 2023, so for the next 160 days, you can uh, deliver to me free port shares at $30 a share. So now, uh, to, uh, obviously, the simple thing is that, well, if Freeport's at $29 and I have the right to sell it to you at 30, I will. But uh, in order for you to have taken this obligation and someone else having that right, the premium on that option is $3.25. So, uh, so today, uh, you can earn immediately in your hand $3.25 a share, which is 10% of the value of the stock um, in income that is guaranteed to be yours no matter what, as real as a dividend. It's immediately credited to the cash balance of your portfolio. That's money in the bank. And so the way that often uh, income writers will look at it is that with a $30 obligation, and a $3.25 income that's guaranteed to be earned, my cost base on an assignment is $26.75, which is essentially where your average cost base would be. Uh, and so uh, for somebody, then they can look at it as a, a proposition. Freeport uh, goes up, I made $3.25. Freeport stays the same, I made $3.25. Freeport McMoran even goes down 10% to let's say $28. I actually still made money because in the end, my cost base is $26.75 and the stock's at 28. I didn't make 10%, but I didn't lose money. So what is the risk? The risk is, well, Freeport goes through one of those devastating drops like it did a few months ago. And it goes from, uh, let's say $31 down to 20. Well, now, your cost base is $26.25 and the stock's down at 20. Now, when the assignment comes in, you're down 20% on your position uh, from, uh, you know, uh, from where you are. But I always like to think of it this way. What if someone just liked the shares and they bought it today at 32 bucks? Who's better off, me at 26 or them at 32? I only, I only need the stock, uh, you know, to go up 20 plus percent 
in order, well, a little more than 20%, but like I, I needed to go up uh, uh, to make my money back and back to break even. Someone that, uh, that needs the stock to go back to 32 bucks from 20 is looking for a 50 plus percent rally off of that low just to get back to break even. And so there's a, the, the trade-off. It sounds almost too good to be true. The trade-off is you don't have extraordinary gains. You can't go and make 50 or 100% on the upside of the stock. Uh, and so the way that I like to describe it is, is that the person who commits themselves to being an, uh, an income harvester this way is saying, I prefer a bird in hand versus two in the bush. I would rather take a guaranteed 10% for the next uh, six months of income that is mine to be made versus the chance I might make 20 or 30%, but I might not. Again, it's predicated, or the, what we've set up here is we've said, we like the stock, you know, that we were examining the stock. And, and uh, again, to me, and I love your point, as I said about leverage, that's no leverage. I wanted to buy a thousand shares. So I sold the equivalent of a thousand shares worth of puts. That would be 10 contracts, but no need to get the detail. But I, you know, so at worst case, I get those thousand shares and I love, you've described it beautifully. I get those thousand shares at a $3.25 uh, below the strike price, the, the guaranteed, the promised price of $30. So I was going to buy it anyways, but now I'm getting it at 2675, you know, and I think that's the key, the key component. The other side, now you can thank me for complicating this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't want people to lose the drift of that. But the other thing one can do is let's say we're getting into December and it looks, you know what? It's trading below 30. I think they are going to actually give it to me, you know, sooner or later. They're not going to pass up being able to sell it to me at 30 if the stock's lower. Well, maybe I could buy that back and then resell for a longer period of time again. Yes, and increase that. Let's roll, roll it yeah. down and out. It's called. It's a, It's a, It's one of the tactical adjusting trades that one can do uh, along the way. But Michael, I will give you an example of how I also blended it once with my trading. I I, I love this one story back. I think it was two, was it 2012 or 2013 when Barrick Gold had that really bad announcement and it lost like 50% of its value in in like what did they have billion dollar write down or whatever that I, I don't remember which specific year it was but I had a thousand shares of Barrick um, at uh, at thirty dollars a share uh, at the time and I was holding it into that event. And I just got the sucker punch to the solar plex, uh, just like the shares dropped, uh, you know, down to 18 bucks trading down. So what I did, the implied volatilities jumped on the stock. The stock's hugely volatile, implied volatility. And when, when an implied volatility expands, you get paid more for, uh, uh, for the premium you harvest. I turned around down at $15 uh, on Barrick. And I sold at that moment uh, three, uh, for a $3 premium, a put option to dollar cost average my shares of Barrick. And uh, I was successful at, uh, month after month selling all the premium until it finally got put to me. Finally, it got to the strike and, uh, and I was successful for several months grabbing income. Then the shares were delivered and I dollar cost averaged my shares from the $30 original price, you know, down to 22 and change uh, down there. Plus I ended up harvesting almost like six, $7 of premium uh, over the, the half a year of, of income grabbing. And in the end, I just needed a two, $3 rally in Barrick and I was back to break even. 
and and so I used it as a a way of repairing my my strategy on a stock I was willing to dollar cost average on. But I was saying, well, this is the level I'm willing to dollar cost average at. I don't want to do it here, but if it gets down to here, that's where I will dollar cost average. And so you, it's one of the many tools in your re, uh, available to you when you uh, learn and educate yourself on how to utilize these. Uh, these. Uh, but uh, another great example, I mean, we're talking about it, tools, the right word, things in your arsenal that can reduce your risk, enhance your income. And it's really, they're not difficult. I mean, sometimes the jargon, if you've never heard the word put before. Okay, what's that? You know, and I get confused. No, there's the what they can get more complex, but what you're describing is very straightforward. And I love that example, by the way, of saying, is there a price you would actually take the stock after that initial drop in Barrick? And you said, yes, there is. And that's where I'm going to sell my put. And I, I just think, and again, I have a confession. I just did it on Newmont uh, when Newmont just did that drop and I, I uh, sold some to, uh, to repair a trade I had. So uh, I'm doing it real time again. <laughs> well, but another great example is I've looked at those gold shares and they've taken a much higher beating. And so have the oil stocks compared to the commodity price. You know, yes, I know gold is, is dropped, yep. but boy, whether, you know, I'm just picking numbers out of a hat now, gold drops 10%, the stock went 30. We certainly did get that you know, in the oil drop recently, the stocks went way further. So here's an example. You still like the oil sector. So you could do it on an exchange traded fund, first of all, and get the broader oil. But let's say you had a couple of favorites, like Suncor was a favorite or something like that. And again, I am not making recommendations, you know, but uh, so what a great example that you can just say, okay, well, Suncor is now traded down to this. I'll sell a put at that price taken the premium as Patrick was describing, you know, so my worst case is I get the price stock at a cheaper value than I was prepared, you know, and I like the stock. And as you said there, whether it's Newmont or whether it's Barrick, but that's a great example where the commodity, uh, the stocks drop far more than the commodity and that should get at least some people interested. So Michael, I, I feel it would uh, be a great benefit to your listeners for us to just have a brief conversation as to what it looks like in your account and what is the pitfall that many beginners will experience when tr attempting this for the first time. So let's say you have $30,000 of extra cash in your portfolio that you wanted to allocate to buying 1,000 shares of Freeport, McMore, uh, uh, Freeport at $30 a share. The, when you sell the put, uh, that 30,000 cash stays in cash. More importantly, that $3.25 in premium is immediately credited to your cash balance. So suddenly you now have $33,000 cash sitting there. What has though changed is your available uh, margin. Uh, and now you could be cash covered. The term cash covered for a put means that we had the money to buy the shares. So if the shares are put to us, we, um, uh, we have the money sitting there in a money market fund. But what ends up happening is a lot of people, when they put that put sale in, they still see all that cash sitting as cash. And they say, look at this, my money isn't working for me. It's sitting there in cash and I'm not doing anything with this money. But you have to think, no, no that actually money is there to collateralize an obligation for the next six months that I sold that might be put to me. And what often happens in those scenarios is a lot of beginners start to spend all of that extra cash, forgetting that Freeport obligation was there. And that is where the accidental leverage comes in, where, where that happens. And so uh, the, the kind of downfall of the way brokerages do it is they don't, well, they'll show that you have 10 puts sold on Freeport 
that are valued at three thousand uh, dollars as a liability in your account they don't show you the notional assignment value that you have sold for those puts. You have to take that extra step on a spreadsheet or on a piece of paper to say, I sold uh, these puts and therefore I have to earmark 30,000 cash to this put. And the thing is you have to do that little extra homework because the brokerages do just a lousy job of making sure you understand that. And so you have to just do that one little step. And in the meantime, though, as you say, you know, you might be have to come up with 30,000, you sold a put, you might have to come up, but that money can sit in a redeemable term deposit for that same 90 day yes. period or whatever the length was. Six Pick up a couple periods. percent. And yeah. And all of a sudden though, you're, and that's the whole point. We're building our percentages here. And, uh, and, yes. and we won't even go into this at this point. I'll trick you and we'll get together again and talk about that other side. I do own the stock. And we could sell someone yeah. the right to buy it from us and take in premium that way. And so uh, you've done a fabulous job, but maybe the easiest thing for me to do is tell people to go to uh, bigpicturetrading.com, bigpicturetrading.com. And by the way, you can get a 14-day free trial right there. Just click on the front uh, cover there bigpicturetrading.com. And as I say, Patrick, you've done a great job expressing for me why I think investors have to be familiar with this, you know, have to take advantage, especially in a marketplace, as I say, that's getting buffeted by a lot of different signals that are sort of outside just a simple, let's assess the, uh, the stock. I mean, there's geopolitical events, example. So you've done a fabulous job. I appreciate you joining us from Europe. And you can also find Patrick. I know he'll be busy with the market huddle with our friend Kevin Muir. So he, he's got a lot of stuff going on and he found time for us. Much appreciated from Big, Big Picture Trading. Thank you, Michael, for having me. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. Now, I was going to start by saying this is a big story in the news. I'm talking about the ongoing protest by farmers in the Netherlands against the climate agenda that demands a reduction in both fertilizer use and the amount of livestock. It's now spawned protests in Germany, Italy, Poland, Serbia, other countries. And we've got the prime minister announcing a pollution reduction target for farmers that experts say is, you know, when you want that kind of a goal, that's such a radical pollution decline in such a short period. Well, that, in effect, is going to be a fertilizer uh, banned and livestock. So we'll see where that goes in Canada. But as I said, big story in the Netherlands, other parts of Europe. But then I realized it isn't getting covered by the Canadian, by Canada's major media. Why, by the way, I don't have any idea, but it should be, because this is a major challenge to the climate agenda. And it brings me to the shocking stat of the week. Now, keep in mind, we're in a global food crisis, and the Dutch are the world's second largest exporter of agricultural food products. So what specifically are they trying to implement in the Netherlands? According to calculations done by the Dutch finance ministry, 11,200 livestock farmers are going to be forced to shut down. They're going to be forced to sell to the government, then they get shut down in order to reduce nitrogen emissions, in order to meet European environmental rules. Another 17,600 farmers would need to reduce the number of animals they keep to meet those climate goals. In other words, that represents about a fifth of all farms in the Netherlands, and they're going to be forced to shut down while almost one-third of farms are forced to scale down and reduce livestock. I mean, farmers are already dealing with huge problems and huge challenges, like the price increases in fertilizer and energy. Now, tens of thousands of farmers and farm workers would actually lose their job in order to meet government climate goals. And that's let alone the decline in agricultural production at a time of a global food shortage. 
I mean, at the very least, climate uh, activists and those who care deeply about the climate should at least understand why farmers are protesting. I look forward to this every week, getting a chance to talk with Ozzy Jurek. Ozbuzz.ca does a fabulous job at looking at the markets really throughout North America and the world at times when I, when I put that question to him. Uh, but Ozzy, I'm going to start this week with something that just a, a follow on from last week. And I was actually talking about this in the shocking stat, just in general about farms. So one aspect of it is that we've had a huge increase in the price of farmland. And I'm thinking Bill Gates comes to mind as he's been a major accumulator in the U.S., but let's talk instead, you know, what's gone on in Canada. Let maybe start with Alberta. What's happened to farm land in uh, prices in the last couple of years? Well, the average uh, of Canadian farmland increased by 8.3%. And you know, Mike, as they say, you put one foot in hot water and one in cold water on average, you're not lukewarm. And it's the same with that average price because the average farmland increased in BC by 18%. In Ontario, by 22%, and even on Prince Edward Island, they were double the national average at 15%. It's interesting. Uh, we can only guess at what that really is reflecting. I mean, maybe it's reflecting the agricultural shortage, uh, raise, raising commodity prices there. I've got another take on it, though. It also may be reflecting, or an opportunity at least, it's a very tough go, especially in this environment. We've got talk about new fertilizer regulations or push by the government. Maybe some farmers are saying, you know what, I'm just going to cash in. I'm going to sell this and I'm going to get out of the business. I mean, again, totally anecdotal in my case, but it certainly occurs to me. Well, and listening to last week's uh, show, which, by the way, every listener that didn't hear it should see it again. That's the beauty about having a podcast. But that man was really interesting to raise, you know, rattle my cage because we just are not aware of those issues that that we uh, that these guys face. Well, the Alberta average price was 3.6%, but again, the southern region was triple that, was over 10%. So you're right, there was certainly a reason why you might want to sell. Look at BC. The Thompson-Nicola region had an average increase of 32%. Now, they are lower priced on a per acre basis. They range from about 9,000 to 21,000. Go to the Okanagan, it's up 22%. The range there is from 20,000 to 88,000. And the South Coast, it can go as 197,000 an acre. You know, and I say, it's just something to be aware of here because there's a lot of trends coming and impacting. But yeah, I, I'm th thank you for those because I was suspecting that's the kind of trend that we are seeing. And your point's well taken. When you get an average, it doesn't really explain near as much as when you look at specifics. Now, let me throw a curveball at you because I'm going to move on when we talk about average values. One of the other things that's, uh, you know, we talk real estate you know, the world talks, uh, or at least the Canadian world talks about Toronto, talks about Vancouver. One of the things that you've been uh, coming back to, uh, back to is the one market that seems to be strong, and that's Alberta. I mean, uh, you know, Calgary, Edmonton, other, uh, other places, obviously, but they look like they are sucking in some people from Vancouver and from Toronto, and it seems to me it got a lot to do with uh, house prices. Yeah, there's no question about it. We always talk about Calgary and Edmonton being cold, but listen to this. In Vancouver, the average single-family home price is 2.1 million. In Calgary, it's 643,000. In Edmonton, 489,000. My goodness gracious! I mean, that's four times. Uh, Vancouver is four times the price of Edmonton. On the condo side, 
the average condo is around 800,000 in Vancouver, 362 in Calgary, 229 in Edmonton. I mean, it's mind-boggling the differences. And no wonder that people picking up the U-Haul and saying, hey, you know, we can have a great lifestyle there. But from an investor perspective, sort of that's what I look at. I was talking to James Snarl, he's with EXP Realty, he's one of the ace uh, investment type realtors in Edmonton. He says, Ozzy, I can get your rental condo, 700 square feet, for $80,000, it rents for 800 bucks. And a house at 400,000 with a downstairs suite, 1,500 income upstairs, 1,000 in the bottom suite. Now that is the kind of investments we used to make in the United States 10 years ago. That's still there in Edmonton today. Oh God, we got to give you those numbers again. You know, I don't want to just repeat, but my goodness gracious. I mean, for someone living in Vancouver, <coughs> you know, compare that. You, you, if you pay like 1.6 million on your mortgage, you know, that's, you know, compare that with what your alternative or opportunity, rather, I should say, in, in what you've just described. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, the look, if you took that $400,000 mortgage in, Cal, in Edmonton and at that $400,000 home and put down 20% as an investor must, you have a $320,000 mortgage, say 3.6%, it would be $1,500 a month. In Vancouver, that $2.1 million investment would have to have a $1.6 million if you could get it, and a monthly payment would be $7,500. Very, very difficult to make a profit strictly on income basis. And especially when you put the overlay of you know a stronger energy market uh, that I don't see any sign, I and mean, it has ups and downs, of course, but it's a longer-term move here, especially natural gas. Obviously, oil's involved with that, too. Uh, that augurs well. I mean, people should make, make a, a, a distinction that you can have uh, energy shortages, but that doesn't mean, uh, you know, the oil markets in Canada aren't just absolutely thriving and going full out. And that's what's happening. So it's been a great employment market, which, as you say, Aussie, the markets go or money goes for investments in real estate where the people work. And they're certainly working in Alberta right now in the oil sector. And of course, that was a big reason why we had the decline and that the Europe, um, that Edmonton and Alberta's, uh, Calgary's real estate market had their decline right uh, co uh, coinciding with the drop in the energy. So it's all reversed now. No question. And we always joke about how cold it is. But listen, if you're into skiing and sneak ski doing and a thousand wonderful things, let's remember Calgary is one of the most exciting cities in the world. Both of those cities have a cultural base that is dramatic. They're major cities. And really for $400,000 house, I mean, I'm starting to think, Josephina, which is my wife, yep. let's think about moving. There you go. I'm, I'm <laughs> with you. Put a trailer on the back for the Campbells. Ozzy, thanks. thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. And remember something. I've always been wondering about men and women, and George Carlin said it best. Here's all you have to know about men and women. Women are crazy. Men are stupid. And the main reason women are crazy is that men are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to remind people the Land Rush Conference coming up, landrushcanada.com. It's September 10th, uh, about 300 really good speakers. I know it's not 300, but <laughs> what is it? 14, 14 uh, great presentations on a variety of investment in real estate topics, uh, You know, whether it's uh, an apartment or building or development or what have you, residential. Uh, you can find it at the landrushconference.com, as you can other details, but it's September 10th. In the meantime, go to ozbuzz.ca and have a good time. Thanks, Mike, and thanks to the listeners. Let's go live to the trading desk now. And the trading desk is presented by G2 Energy, securing tomorrow's unique oil and gas acquisition opportunities today. 
Vic, I got a lot to talk to you about, but I'm going to start with where you finished last week and you had talked about it the week before. And that's when you said it's interesting when a market gets fed some bad news and doesn't go down, it wants to go up. That's certainly what we've been witnessing. I mean, and that's what I think anybody who's good at this business does. They stand back and say, I don't care what my opinion is. The market sent me a message and I'm going to get on board. So, boy, that was ever the right call on your part. Well, you know, the global stock markets have just continued to rally since the low that they made in the middle of June. And they made that low right when the Fed came out and raised rates by three quarters of a point and said, there's a lot more coming. So going into that low, I think the Dow had fallen off about 3000 points in two weeks. I think a lot of the professional traders were short the stock market. And ever since then, it's been a rally just in terms of the Dow. It's rallied about 4,000 points from the lows we had in the middle of June. I think in percentage terms, it's about 15%. And the Dow is up the least. I mean, the stuff that's up the most is the stuff, the junk stuff, the trash stuff, whatever, you know, bad name you want to put on it. The, the, the highly speculative stuff that had no income, those shares have really jumped. So it has been in, in great part, I think, a short covering rally. But the fact is, you know, we've recovered about 50% of the decline that happened in the broad indices from the all-time highs we made in January to the June lows. Well, and just a reminder for people that when we say short covering, we mean some professionals have played the market to go down. Well, obviously, it didn't go down starting in June. And so they've been forced to buy stocks in order to protect themselves, to close out the position. And we've seen that buying power there, Vic. Yeah, well, one of the things I really pay attention to is what I call positioning, like who's got what on in the market and the flows. And I mean, I have to highlight Apple. I mean, Apple now is seven and a half percent of the S&P. Never in the past 40 years has any one stock had that big of a weighting. Apple, you know, took a dive earlier in the year. I guess we fell off almost 30 percent from the all-time highs in January to those June lows. But it's rallied more than 75% since then. Uh, we're, we're back up to, uh, let's say, you know, I think we've recovered 75%, I should say, of, of the break that they had from the January highs to the, to the uh, June lows. Apple has been a magnet for capital. And just one other thing, Mike, I got to add in here. I pay attention to positioning. And what I see is, that net net retail, the public, has not sold stocks this year. Even though at one point, you know, the Dow was, uh, pardon me, the S&P was down 24% from its highs on the lows, retail did not net sell. Well, it's funny. That's what I was chatting, as you know, with Michael Levy about earlier, not giving a, uh, an opinion, but saying, I think a lot of that non-selling was people sort of just ignoring their portfolio goes down, ignored it even harder. You know what I mean? We're just not involved. And I, my recommendation right now is be involved, at least examine the risk you took, you know, because there is still risk in this market. It, I'm not surprised we've had a bounce off the lows, for example, after that kind of a hard decline. And I don't, I'm not saying this is where the market's going from here, but I am saying, hey, investors should have a look. And traders would do that by nature. They'd be in and out of the market a lot. I'm just saying, you got a little reprieve right now. Just have a check of your uh, portfolio. But there's a couple of other markets too. I mean, we talk stocks, but uh, tell me about the bond market. Oh, I was just thinking exactly about that when you mentioned you, we've got a little bit of a reprieve. 
the, the bond market did not like the CPI reports and the PPI reports we got the, this week. Now, the, the stock market seemed to think, oh, hey, look at peak inflation has come and gone and things are going to get easier and away we go. And it was just one more log on the fire, as it were, for the stock market. But the bond market was, uh, it, I think the technical term, Mike, is it had a hissy fit. You know, the yields just jumped. The bond market was looking at that. And I think what the bond market is seeing is that inflation is going to stay higher for longer. And that's going to continue to put pressure on the Fed to keep bumping up rates and whatever. You know, we, we often say that the bond market is smarter than the stock market. I'm not sure that's really true, but but, you know, it makes a good line. So if the bond market is saying, be careful, Charlie, maybe you ought to listen. I don't want to let you go without talking currencies, too. And uh, again, because all of these markets had such abrupt moves in one direction or another. And have we had the same sort of counter trend move uh, when we're talking the euro, for example, you know, which had a huge move or the yen, which had a huge move? Well, I mean, I mentioned that CPI report, the, the euro, all of the currencies jumped on that. Now, the U.S. dollar has rallied, I'm going to say, about 22 percent from the lows it made in January of 2021. So in a way, the U.S. dollar was in need of a correction. But the way I looked at it was the, the rally in the euro and the yen, well, actually all the currencies, for me, was just an opportunity to get back on the short side of those markets. I just, I look at the news <clears throat> and the reports coming out of Europe. I mean, it's just one thing after another. They got, they're struggling with over there. And okay, that's the news. And I'm always a little susceptible to the news. But there's a metric that I keep my eye on, and that is the difference between the euro and the Swiss franc. And it just keeps going like the euro just keeps falling and falling against the Swiss. I see that as a barometer that the smart money, the money that can move into different places, is turning their back on the euro and looking for safety in the Swiss. So I'm, I'm happy to be on the short side of the euro. As always, great stuff, Vic. I want to invite people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. He'll put his latest stuff up for the show, uh, new charts, that kind of thing. Always take advantage of it, victoradare.ca. Vic, thanks very much. Hey, Mike, it's always fun talking with you. Thank you. Hey, just a reminder that the Trading Desk is brought to you by G2 Energy. Now, G2 Energy trades on the Canadian Securities Exchange under the symbol GTOO, or you can go to g2.energy. And you can learn more and see the investor fact sheet. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. If what's going on in the energy market didn't have such tragic results or consequences, I think it would be funny, especially when you combine it with the virtue signaling climate crusaders. I mean, in the investment markets, something in the neighborhood of $35 trillion was, has been raised under the banner of ESG, Environment, Social and Governance. But that's as far as the definition really goes. I mean, the specific meaning is open to all manner of interpretations. It's proven to be far more a marketing slogan than a specific call to action. I mean, label any government spending program. Hey, it's ESG. Or just slap that on a mutual fund or ETF and watch the money flow in. I mean, it's hard to escape the conclusion that in the last five to seven years, ESG has simply become code words for the progressive agenda. For example, governance. Well, it's morphed into diversity when it comes to the makeup of corporate boards. You know, uh, ESG scores are especially subject, though, given 
the criteria are all over the map, the measurement system all over the map. I mean, there's something like 20 I saw the other day. A major corporation can sell maybe some of its more troublesome fossil fuel related assets to another company in another jurisdiction, which may not have the same environmental standards, but still gets the big PR push for the selling corporation, even from activists, because they're thrilled to be able to say their pressure has brought about change. But in fact, though, the environmental impact may actually be worse. I mean, California, my gosh, they shut down oil and gas, but they're importing it from countries with far less stringent environmental standards. But now the state can claim to have cut emissions. I mean, it's laughable. When it comes to investing, researchers at Columbia and London School of Economics compared the ESG record of U.S. companies in 147 ESG fund portfolios, compared that with companies in 2,428 non-ESG portfolios. And they found that the companies in the ESG portfolios actually had worse compliance records for labor and environmental rules. They also found that companies added to ESG portfolios, those companies that were thrown into them, did not subsequently improve compliance with labor or environmental regulations. They Look, there's a lot more in that file, and I'm going to talk more about it next week. But I want to talk and specifically about one aspect of what's called greenwashing. That's the European Union's claims about renewable energy that include biofuel. I mean, biofuel sounds so green, doesn't it? I mean, it must be a good thing for the climate. Until you look a little further... 40% of what the EU claims as renewable energy is simply burning wood. Let me repeat that. 40% of what the EU claims as renewable is simply burning wood. Is that what you thought it was when they said a significant portion of the grid was powered by renewable energy? And thanks to gas shortages and sky-high prices, well, wood burning is just going to become even more popular this winter. I mean, the claim that it's environmentally friendly is made even more absurd when you consider that a large portion of the biofuel are wood pellets. Well, where do they come from? Wood pellets are coming from clear-cutting forests in Louisiana, North and South Carolina in the U.S. Uh, they're logging trees in protected areas in Estonia. And you know what? Those wood pellets could even be from British Columbia, where there's a thriving wood pellet industry. And come on. And enhancing the forest, just one more aspect to give you. The EU classifies burning wood pellets as carbon neutral. You know what? That is more than a goofy. That's all the time we have this week. Look, I'm really glad you're with us, and I hope you're recommending Money Talks to friends. Uh, you can click on the follow button. We really appreciate it. But it's another week where I found we were putting up so much stuff that you would never find in the mainstream media on a variety of subjects. Yeah, we're talking a lot about energy these days and the use of coal. Why? Because that's the biggest subject gripping the world, but also about inflation and so many other aspects about political unrest and other parts of the world. Because as I said in the editorial, I'm worried it's coming here. But all of that, that's my rationale. That's the reason you should, hey, it's free. Click on, I'm doing all the research. You just get to read it. You can click on and go to Money Talks tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook or go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. As I say, the more informed you are, you can do whatever you want with the facts and the research we produce. I just think you should be aware of it. And I much appreciate you taking time and joining us on Money Talks. And I hope you have a terrific week. 